for March 26th, 2012. It's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 195. Super hipster beards in a German fusion brunch place. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From District Los Angeles, I'm your host, Matthew Rather, here with the panel to overthink The Hunger Games, the young adult literary and now cinematic sensation. Panel, your question this week, if you had to assign yourself to a district, whether it's one of uh, Suzanne Collins' actual 12 districts or a fanciful district that, that you make up out of whole cloth, except uh, don't use cloth because that comes from District 7 and they've been fired. Oh, never mind. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and we're going to try and keep it relatively spoiler-free, I think we've decided, Ex- except for the first, the, first, uh, the first book in the movie. Um, assign yourself a district. Uh, what would it be? Peter Fenzel. All right. So I'm actually uh, – I'm going to steal something from one of the unpublished Hunger Games Extended Universe books. Uh, my personal favorite one that I, that I read at a, at a secret reading, which is called uh, – it's called Docking Jay. And it's about this uh, – what happened is the, the uh, capital used to have to get supplies shipped to it individually from the different uh, districts. And each district, like the coal district, the food district, the, the cloth district, would have its own system of truckers who would uh, ship, the, ship the stuff into the capital and out of the capital. But they found that it was a dangerous uh, – it was both a dangerous source of information and cooperation. And if the trucks weren't of a standard size and height, it was difficult to get goods in and out of the capital efficient way. So they created District 4.2B, which is uh, the loading dock district which is where all the goods get shipped to uh it's because the thing is like the first three books they really go into the people side but the later books the extended universe books are really about the economic management and like the logistical management which is really what people want to hear about yeah it's a novel about supply chain yeah 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 So I'm from. I would be from the district where, uh, you know, you have you have the you have the trucking that's there, and they have to go, of course, to the diesel refueling district, which is like 400 miles away. And if you don't make it, you die because you're not allowed to stop for gas anywhere else. But like, where's where they standardize like the height of the loading docks, and they like sign all the bills of lading and the requisition forms. They do all of the like, you know, contracting for the insurance for the different kinds of shipments. But of course, like they can't all know about any of the other districts. So this district is in turn subdivided into 20 other different districts. Where you're, you grow up only learning about the uh, letters of credit that are used to guarantee the goods from your specific district, because you know clearly we have to isolate every part of the economy that's possible. So, uh, and it's a very exciting book, and I really recommend reading it. It has lots of informative graphs, charts, and tables, <laughs> uh, and it has a lot of. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's really if you've ever been interested in, in figuring out, okay, well, where in Panem do they make the balers, right? Uh-huh. That they use to like wrap up the the cardboard material that they. Right. There's like four chapters on it. It's great. It's awesome. All right. Docking Docking J. (laughs) Docking J, District 4.3B. Yep, that's right. Remember, the thing that makes books good is whether the world building is thorough. (laughs) That is what makes books good. Uh, that's and that's the sound. That four note whistle is the sound of the uh, of the trucks backing up in the you know in the, in the of Pan Am when you throw it into reverse. Uh, Mark Lee next in the alphabet. What uh, district are you from? Oh, first of all, that's our sign that everything is okay. In addition to trucks backing up, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, right, guys. Absolutely. Okay, okay. So in the post apocalyptic world of the Hunger Games, uh, I uh, assume that the citizens of Panem who are 
you know, still rapidly obsessed with their pop culture, including the Hunger Games, still need a Wikipedia. So I'm convinced there's an entire district that's dedicated to updating <laughs> Wikipedia in this future world, including like extensive articles about each of the past competitors of the Hunger Games and the different tools that they use. It takes a, it takes a district to keep the thing updated. <laughs> it ta- it takes so do they call it Wikipedia? Is it like Ponimpedia, Capitalpedia? Yeah, that's actually uh, Hillary Clinton wrote that book, right? It takes a district. Yeah, to uh, to sacrifice your children for brutal. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like a great book written by Hillary Clinton. To hunt a child, yes, exactly. <laughs> or really, really more, you know, um, you know, you hunt a child, and you can hunt a child for a day, but you teach a child to hunt each other, and they, uh, you know, and they'll give you seventy-five years of the Hunger Games. John Paris, <laughs> what district are you from? What up? What up? So I, I thought about this for a bit, and really, I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of stumped for what district I'd be from, other than one of the original uh, 12, which I think we're all, we're all clearly ducking. So g- going off my, my origins from Baltimore, I'm going to be whichever district produces recreational drugs. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No, I, I thought about that, but just... Not to well actually you, well, to well actually you. District 6, according to uh, Ponimpedia, uh, specializes in transportation and medicine. And there are in the later books, I think there's a reference to, uh, to morph, morphling, a morphine-like pain relief medication. Yeah, I don't know, but consider the source, right? He probably just made it say that on Ponimpedia. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, is Panem like a crack-is-whack world, or is it a meth-not-even-once world? Because if it's a crack-is-whack world, then all the drugs are produced in one place, right, and are shipped in around Panem, and trafficking is the primary business. But if it's a meth-not-even-once world, then it's possible that you have a whole bunch of bathtub drug dealers, <laughs> right, who are, like, making their own supplies of, of nuke or whatever fictional, or morphling, whatever fictional drug. I know that they have the district that makes, like, the medicine and the other drugs like that. Um, I mean, would you be, like, would this be, like, the Breaking Hungry? Well, like you're I, I like think, a, uh, I think we can work this out, right? That like clearly they would have a centralized drug district, but uh, Suzanne Collins would like you to believe at least that meth not even once is a morally superior way to make drugs. So there's going to yeah. be some like a gritty drug in a bathtub producer um, who you you root for, and they're the underdog. Right. So it is like Breaking Bad. Awesome. Yeah. That, uh. Breaking fast, you could call it. Well, it's more that than say like the cocaine or, or the cocaine or marijuana fields of Latin America, right? Because uh, presumably all the suitably agricultural lands are being used to make food, uh, which is in short supply, rather than growing large uh, amounts of crops that are only used for recreation. <laughs> I don't know. People have made that mistake before on like two uh, occasions I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> It's all in the game, man. It's all in the game. <laughs> Speaking of, that's actually what I was going to say. I am from District 14, which is Hamsterdam, uh, from season three of The Wire. <laughs> uh, that's uh, it's not the first time I've thought of The Wire today as I was rereading The Hunger Games. All right, so uh, though we don't have. What about Jordan? Did Jordan you say your district? Oh no, Jordan! Oh damn it! Sorry, I thought it was uh, I thought it was my turn. But Jordan, you get pride of place. Look, this is the, the last time that you're you are a tyrant and you're dominating us and keeping us against each other. We need to rise up and overthrow and fight each. Uh, never mind. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, and I'll so yeah, uh, rising up from out of the ashes, it's uh, mocking Jay Jordan Stokes uh, to <laughs> have pride of place at the end of the uh, question of the week. 
So let me just make make sure that I'm clear here. We're supposed to be basing this on some aspect of our own persona, right? That dictates which of these fictional uh, districts we would come from. Yeah, that's that's why I chose the the uh, inner city drug corner, right? Yeah. So so as like. <laughs> As someone who has been insanely privileged my entire life, I don't know about y'all, but I'm from the capital. You know, <laughs> my, my people are academics and accountants and musicians, and you know, I'm I'm talking into a dedicated podcasting headset as I do this. So you know, let's call a call it what it is. Right. My and, hair is and your pink. hair is pink. Yeah, <laughs> I have I have a tattoo of a wildebeest on my forehead, and I will watch you all, all your children at least, murder each other for my sport. <laughs> I know it's actually it's a bittersweet day when you realize you're too old for the Hunger Games, isn't it? Because you know, uh, on the one hand you've survived, on the other hand you're not getting any not getting any younger, you know. So uh, like yeah, I feel the- that draft. yeah, it's like the draft. Except not at all. <laughs> <laughs> like the like the tributes of the the different districts of Pan Am, we uh, which is different from the districts of Pan Am, um, which you know was canceled after uh, only one or two episodes. Uh, no one liked that as much as the Hunger Games. Uh, we are going to fight to the death about the uh, meaning of the film adaptation of the of the first book of the Hunger Hunger Games, and we're we're going to try and keep it spoiler free for the the. Uh, last two books, but if you are saving the first book or the movie, uh, you know, hang up now because it's uh, you know it's about to get all it's about to get all hungry up in here. Um, so like uh, like hungry hungry children or hungry hungry hippos or anything else that's hungry hungry like the citizens of Pan Am, uh, let us gorge ourselves on the on the fine <laughs> on the fine uh, delicacies uh, placed so- before us by this film. Sure. Should we start by just getting out our general impressions about it? I mean, we don't do reviews on this podcast, right? But um, should we talk about, do you even like the movie compared to the book? Uh, I, for one, would call it good, but far from great. Uh, I had plenty of problems with it, uh, but I was entertained. You mean, do you mean as an adaptation or do you mean uh, as a, as a film in its own right? Well, both, I think. Okay. I, I, you want to just go down the line? I really liked it as a film. I really liked it as a film in its own right. I, I thought there were a lot of, I thought there were a lot of really interesting stylistic choices they made. The casting was perfect. Uh, I'm. I should also caution that I'm a big. I'm a big, big sucker for melodrama. So take take that with a grain of salt, perhaps. But really loved almost everything they did with it. The the cinematography was a little claustrophobic at times. Enough that I took note of it, and I don't have any sort of film school training. So when I notice the cinematography, it's like hmm. But other than that, and I think that was almost to a purpose, but I'll talk more to that later. So, yeah, two thumbs up. Right. It was super it was super close. It was also, I mean, super handheld, even in places when you wouldn't expect it to be. When they got on the hovercraft for the first time, I was expecting the, all the like handheld forest stuff to give way to like smooth camera movements and, you know, a slightly slightly more uh, slightly roomier shots and things like this but no uh in fact it didn't when it when it took like eight cuts for jennifer lawrence to walk across a log in the forest uh in the early hunting scene i i knew i was in for kind of a seasick time fentil or stokes you want to yeah you want to weigh in here I mean, I saw it with Jordan because he was here, which was awesome. And uh, what I, all I'll say in terms of an overall impression was uh, we walked back to my Jordan – was, Jordan was staying with me. It wasn't that I was going to score. He walked back to my place with me, <laughs> and, um, and which is like a, kind of a, a 45 – Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, Just it's like about Katniss. a 45-minute walk. 
Oh, come on. It's a 45-minute walk from the movie theater we saw it at to my place, and we talked about the movie the entire way home, and there were other groups of people who were also making the same walk for like more than a half an hour who were also talking about the movie. And we passed a friend of mine on the street and said hello, who had been standing there for a while, and she mentioned that she'd also heard a bunch of people going by talking about the movie. So it's definitely seized the popular imagination in some way. Um, it's not just like an inferior cop of a cop out on the book uh, it's got something going <laughs> at least on that one that one street in boston it is like <laughs> on, the thoroughfare, on, the, on the long walk of shame back from what the you know <laughs> to be fair it was massachusetts avenue i mean we're not talking about just any street here like that uh, yeah. one if there were a boston monopoly would be at least two hundred dollars <laughs> <laughs> There, there was there was an energy in the streets, much like the energy in in the Capitol after uh, Caesar Flickerman's final uh, broadcast, immediately prior to the the Hunger Games, his his interviews with the tributes. Yeah, yeah, uh, just about exactly like that. Yeah, it's a little. I mean, it's a little uh, opaque to me how how we ought to how we ought to proceed. Maybe a, a comparison of the the film to the to the movies but or 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 i mean considering the film in its own right is another uh is another way we could go the 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 book is narrated in in the first person and it's it's also all in the present tense so not only do you feel like you have privileged access to sort of katniss's thoughts and and to her her sort of personality um but you also get the feeling that it's unfolding for you uh, at the moment and that you know what you're getting in the way of narration is is sort of reacting to things as they happen rather than some sort of long considered you know well-crafted dickensian uh you know, kind of orations uh, on things, um, it, right? Was that was that sense preserved for you uh, in in the film? That sense of like that it's the it's it's really the the character who is who is the draw here. Matthew, I think that's one of the things that the, the I think that's one of the things that the claustrophobic cinematography aids in. For instance, there's there's a scene like just before Katniss is elevated into the arena where she has you know her last couple seconds with Cinna, her stylist, played by Lenny Kravitz, and she enters the room and the camera is so close on uh, on her e- on her ear and the hinge of her jaw that we don't even see what she's looking at or reacting to or even really get a sense of the kind of room she's in until she runs over and embraces Cinna, sort of in a panic. So that's very much a we're discovering things at the same time and at the same tempo as Katniss is. So we can imagine that, you know, as she she enters this room where she's about 60 seconds away from being thrust into a fight for her life, she's not really processing things. Then all of a sudden she sees Cinna, one of the few people she regards as a real friend and confidant, and rushes to him. And we... We discover that at pretty much the same time she might. Sure, that's just on, one example. On the uh, right, absolutely. When when we're with her, we're pretty tight on her the whole time. On the other hand, we do get to see things that are um, uh, kind of cra- made up for the film, like the inside of the the what the war room of the game and these exchanges with Donald Sutherland, uh, right? Because the president is not a huge presence. Um, in the first book, he becomes more of a presence later in the series when they turn from the kind of immediate survival horror of, uh, you know, of the Hunger Games into a more kind of political, kind of large-scale existential horror uh, right, so, later in the series. Speaking of that larger scale, I mean, a, a notable way that 
this movie breaks with the book and the books are a tight focus on Katniss is uh, the scene that portrays a rebellion, right? Um, those are things that Katniss finds out about uh, secondhand in, in the beginning of the second book, but we see it explicitly laid out for us um, in, the, in this first movie. Uh, I, for one, found that to be a little bit distracting. The also other things, going, like also like, going back to Gale, right? Going back to Gale, <laughs> well, a little bit less so. Of... Like the the seeing the seeing the crowd reactions to uh, what they see on TV. I thought that was totally appropriate and fitting in sort of the meta commentary about the nature of mass media, which I think we should talk about later. In the, in um, the... I thought that was was like, like finding good. Those are like a ways that you know we can expand away from the Katniss POV. In ways that make sense, but then all of a sudden, you know, there's this, uh, you know, big rebellion. These big things that are happening um, that are uh, sort of another degree removed away from the Hunger Games. Uh, that struck me as a little bit out of place. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going to go ahead and, and take it in a different, make a different uh, suggestion, which is I feel like the movie really strongly locates the audience of the movie with the audience of the Hunger Games. Right. Uh, yes, you still do experience Katniss's, uh, you know, events, and there's definitely, and John, John's right in that there is definitely like some intimacy with her at, at a lot of moments, but. Um, Especially the role that Caesar, Caesar Flickerman is that his name, uh, the Stanley Tucci character who's yeah, name Tucci I can never remember yeah. in the book. Yeah, yeah, especially the way that like everybody who sees the movie seems to love his character and totally buy into it, right? Like for me, he says like, okay, I mean, even though he is, of course, like you know, a, com- a complicit organizer around a, a horrible blood sport, right? Like, and everybody's totally buys it. Everybody's watching the Hunger Games and enjoys it. Uh, the complaints that I've heard from people who haven't liked it have been, oh, I didn't, I, I didn't care enough about the children who were murdered, right? And it's like, well, that's kind of the point now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, we're, we're, we're watching this movie and like, I don't want to see a huge amount of character development about the people that Katniss stabs. I want Katniss to stab them and win, right? Like, uh, and I don't want to impugn that entirely because I, I do feel like to an extent there's something complex that's going on with that and, and a reflection of us, but I definitely felt watching the movie that I was more similar to the people watching all these events from home than I was in the books when I was in Katniss's head. Right. And even the thing with the Game Masters is another side of that, where these are people I care about because I'm not Katniss. And she doesn't care about yeah, that. There's no reason that's a very, about that. That's a very deliberate and, to my money, artfully done stylistic touch. The, the various echoes of recognizable pop culture that this brutal, futuristic, dictatorial death sport is meant to evoke. There's Caesar Flickerman sort of challenge, uh, channeling the Barbara Walters, you know, very poised interview. Like, he, he, we, we get very tight on him for his very deliberate things, like, you know, his sort of bit lip and, and restrained nod when someone says something emotional, sort of hunched shoulders and leaning in to touch someone to get them to open up. We... During the interviews, for instance, when we get the, the flash of the interview with Cato, he talks very much like I, I was particularly reminded of, you know, college athletes who ESPN will sometimes interview on, a, on draft day for uh, the NFL draft, for instance. He, you know, talking about how, you know, oh, I've been training all my life for this. I'm ready. I just want to get in there and, you know, win one for the for the home team or for the district in this case. Uh, it, it's clearly meant to. But I mean, the 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 whole conversations with him and uh, and Claudius Templesmith who's who's the announcer for the games it's it's all very despite the futuristic setting it's meant to be familiar it's meant to yeah. 
It, yeah, it's meant to touch on familiar things. And that, I thought, was a brilliant touch. So I want, I want to continue on that thought, John. But before we get too far, this thought escapes us. The comparison, we've had two comparisons to drafts, of sports drafts so far. And uh, we could have an entire other podcast about how football in particular is this sort of blood sport, which is our closest analogy to the Hunger Games. Because it is <laughs> devastating to the people who play it. But that, as I said, is a topic for another time. Uh, what I did want to talk about is what you're talking about, uh, John, your main thrust of your point there about how, uh, you know, what we see on screen is very evocative of, you know, the pop culture that we consume. And that is intentional. Right. And to the point where uh, two young uh, young girls who were sitting next to me, probably, you know, target audience, uh, teenage girls uh, that, that were sitting next to me, they were chatting a little bit throughout the movie. And at one point. This is when uh, I think there's a tender moment between Katniss and Peeta uh, on screen. You can see, you know, it's, you know, when we know sort of the backstory about how it's a little bit manufactured uh, by the contestants in it. And then the game masters are watching it on their screens. Right. And so one of the girls turns to the other and says, it's like a movie. (laughs) <laughs> to which the girl responds, well, of course it's like a movie. That's what we're watching. And then I was like, no, it's just people in there. <laughs> the, thought, the thought that came to my mind was, oh, young, young girls, welcome to the world of metafiction. Oh, well, sort of welcome to it because the points are probably being lost on you, but you know, maybe 10 years from now, you might, if you're lucky, understand what's going on here. Well, the, there's been well, I mean, there's been some like criticism of the movie for create for for making us complicit in the in the the audience of the games in a way that is maybe not totally alienating. Uh, you know what I mean? I, I mean, alienating in the, in the sense of Brechtian alienation. The uh, you know, if if we're identified, we're we're sort of rooted. We're rooting for these things, uh, and we've kind of created a big budget manipulative spectacle uh, that is sort of in a in a series or in a, a narrative that is critical of big budget manipulative spectacles i mean fenzel was that was that the irony you were pointing to in in saying that that we're allied with the the audience of the games in the you know country of pan am i th- yeah it's part of it i just I, I think that the movie is very different from say the running man which is the movie i always want to compare it to where you know, the it is very obvious that the sport itself is bad Right. And that like it's entertaining, but it's entertaining in a way that's self-consciously wrong. Right. And so we're supposed to oppose the way that the sport is presented. In my opinion, both in reading the books and in watching the movies, it's not that the Hunger Games – we're not supposed to be thinking that the Hunger Games themselves are bad. The Hunger Games are an unfortunate necessity, right? The thing that is bad is the way that the social order is currently established and the – Books, I thought, and maybe, and you guys can comment on this too, I thought the books were very materially dialectic about it, where it was like, if this is going to change, it has to be an economic or political struggle where the losers, who the current low-status people have to overthrow the current high-status people, right? Like, in this case, like, and what it means for the for this first movie and this first book is that, like, we are rooting for Katniss to win the Hunger Games more than we are rooting for the Hunger Games not to happen. Uh, and yes, Katniss doesn't like the Hunger Games, and her not liking the Hunger Games is part of why we root for her. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it's just like Peta says pretty early on when she's like, "Wait, do you think you wouldn't be able to kill anyone?" Right? And he's like, "No, I'm sure that I would do it." 
you know and i think that that there's a there's a sadness to that there's a there's a certain there's a part of us that morally doesn't want to think about our actions in that sort of context a lot of the time especially as you know uh, i think as americans uh, maybe i don't know maybe it's other people too where it's it's very highfalutin and you're supposed to want things to be just always you want your art to be representing something that you think of as unambiguously good and you're supposed to be against it if it's not fair Right, but but basically, I, I tend to think see the Hunger Games as like kind of more of a kind of um, like post-colonial feminist like we, these uh, these downtrodden people need to rise up and overthrow the people that are dominating them a lot more than I see it as like an anti-decadence piece, right. especially District uh-huh. Eleven, the Black District. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, if you think about the fact that that, that District Eleven is it's the agricultural district, it's the Black District, both in the movie and the book, and the movie is about. Uh, you know, a, a like a like white a white woman who has to take care of her family as a single mom, uh, teaming up with a bunch of black people to overthrow everybody else. You know, and, and like I mean, that's that's great. You know, in in, in relative to the different ways the Hunger Games could have played out, right? Like, uh, and of course she finds the dude that she gets to be with, but she doesn't really want to be with him. She doesn't really want to be in like the binary relationship. She's kind of not comfortable being the wife and the role that that provides. So it's like you're rooting for her to find a way out of that too. I don't know. That was my sense of it. What, what did you guys yeah. think of, one of that, those one, lines? One of the interesting things about uh, the way that the movie positions you in that is the role that the tributes play in it. Um, not the tributes, the career tributes play, which I think is slightly different from the way that they work in the book. In the book, um, you start off thinking of them as as something that is dangerous. That like just like the fireballs, just like anything else, the career tributes are a danger that's in the arena because they have good killing skills, and therefore you like you want to stay stay the heck away from them. Uh, in the movie, they're they're presented as wicked and as unfair, and they're introduced to you as like they had training in a special school. They always win, and you kind of get the sense that they're cheating at the Hunger Games, which uh, like when you when when Thresh comes along and kills whichever one of them he kills, I've forgotten. Um, you, part of your reaction to that is like, yeah, somebody from the ba- from the good team just killed somebody from the bad team. Although part of what makes the uh, the bad team bad is their strategy of teaming up. Now over the course of the book, um, they get to be more and more of like wicked people um, by doing various things to Katniss, taunting her. Uh, they they kill Rue and they're kind of sadistic about it. Uh, the girl taunting Katniss right before uh, Thresh kills her is a big tipping point for that kind of sense. But then right at the end, it's not them that uh, that kill Cato, right? It's the it's the arena, and it's sort of like reminding you, oh wait, hang on, like having a human villain is convenient for storytelling, but really there's a structural problem here, and right. he it's was like, never it's like never Sinead, It's like Sinead O'Connor coming out on stage, uh, right, and ripping up a photo of the Pope, right? Because you know, let's remember who the real enemy is. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> Which is really, I mean, it's said overtly, it's like a big thing in the second book, right? Like that very statement is like a well, big yeah, part that, of the second book. That's, that's why I, could, I couldn't say who Which isn't really a spoiler. In the second book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, Sinead yeah. O'Connor so, did, uh, did. It's did. the Wesley Snipes character. The Wesley yeah, my, Snipes character that you <laughs> My point is that, that that tension is always there between the sort of immediate uh, proximal threat that's a that's you need to root against and the systemic threat but the movie tips you further into um into like rooting against the immediate target uh, earlier on and in a way by like having president snow be a, a figure uh throughout that you have him sort of as a 
a like prime mover of all this badness to be rooting against and like waiting for his downfall eventually in the third movie. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a subtle difference, but a bit of a difference. Sure. Yeah, there's a there's a distinction between and Pete, I, I don't entirely agree with your take on it, and I'm gonna make my take on it, and I don't know whether this will engage your point at all, but I'm just gonna say some stuff anyway, because this is our podcast, is what we do. There's <laughs> I'm glad that in on the podcast where we've all seen the thing, we have to have that disclaimer. Whereas when we haven't seen the thing, we just do that anyway. <laughs> so yeah, go for it. <laughs> Fair enough. So uh, the movie and the book, or I think the later books in the series, I haven't read them yet, but based on what I understand of them, the books and the movie in particular make clear that the games are a tool of social control. And there's a couple different ways to take this. There's the argument that this thing is an institution of social control in its own right, and the argument that this thing is an institution of social control run by certain people. And and I was looking, I was thinking of a good analogy to come up with, and this is kind of strained, but I'm going to go with it. So let, let's say I made the argument that health insurance is a form of social control because the only way to get really good health insurance in a really cost-effective way is to get, you know, a, a good-paying job that provides it as a benefit so that sort of encourages people to fall into, you know, steady jobs or steady sources of employment and not to, you know, become entrepreneurs or wandering nomads or just loiter in the streets throwing rocks at, at windows or such. So that's one argument, and take it or leave it, but there's some warrant for it. It would be an entirely different argument to say that health insurance is a form of social control and the insurance companies and the government are doing it to keep the man down, for instance. That's an entirely different argument. You can say that an institution has certain effects, but that's different from arguing that an institution is run by the people who benefit from those effects or who is run by the people who are notionally in charge of it. The reason I go into all that is because The Hunger Games makes the point that, A, the games are a method of social control, which is which is not only pretty clearly true, but is, is said explicitly more, more than once by a couple of the characters in the movie, uh, but, but is also explicitly known to be a form of social control. That is to say, the people who are running The Hunger Games know that it's a form of social control. They know why the institution exists, and they are actively devoted to maintaining it. The characters of President Snow and the the games master Seneca Crane, they and even and even you know Peta alludes to this, Cato alludes to this. They know that they're being manipulated by this, which is a rare and almost exclusively fictional level of social consciousness. And it's it's almost exclusively a fictional construct. Like you know, there are institutions in real life, and they have they have powers, but. We rarely assume or we limit to the realms of conspiracy theory the notion that these institutions function this way because, like, two or three people want them to. Right, 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 right. I think to engage with your with your point, the perspective that we see of the of of Seneca Crane, which it just occurred to me how similar he is to Seneca Seneca, right? In that he like <laughs> he thinks he doesn't think of himself as a bad guy. He thinks of himself as a as a craftsman and a genius, and he works with the crazy bad guy. And then, of course, at the end of the story, he's uh, he has mm. to accept the fact that he's going to commit suicide, which isn't how it happens in the book. Oh no, yeah, think, one right? of the like, one of the actually the really nice touches of the movie i thought was how that how that was handled i mean it it was a way that it was very loyal to the spirit of the book uh in in the adaptation yeah yeah yeah, yeah, exactly but one of the cool visual cues with that character i thought was his beard which was awesome (laughs) i was wondering when his beard would come up 
<laughs> yeah, 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 because and this is a this is a reference that only really works now because he has like a super hipster beard, right? Like it's the kind <laughs> of beard that like you could conceivably see outside of like you know a, a German fusion brunch place in like uh, in in Williamsburg or Prospect Heights or any number of other places, <laughs> you know. Like, the, but only certain really cool members of the wait staff or like uh, or uh, attendees would wear it, but. To everybody else outside of the current contemporary moment where the person wearing it thinks he's being cool and progressive, it's a villain beard, right? It's like a villain – it's a kind of beard that a guy would have when he's tying a woman to the train tracks. Yeah, it's, so it's like, a little bit too short to twiddle, but it's, it's not – it's yeah. in that line. <laughs> exactly. He's like, he's like shaved twiddles into it, right? He's like shaved yeah. waxy tips – the shape of waxy tips into it. So like he thinks that he's being cool and progressive, but he's part of a larger narrative which is like nefarious, and there's really no way he can get out of it, and his character is kind of tragic. Um, and, I, and I would go back and I would add, I don't think that The Hunger Games is just about this like social struggle between higher, uh, you know, dominant classes and subaltern classes. I think it's also very much a metaphor about growing up and, and puberty and like the the hunger games are very similar to like the social battles that children go through with one another as teenagers and, and stuff like that and this, i think the movie brought that out a lot more than, in uh, a way uh, in a way don't we all have to kill all the other children that we grow up with <laughs> well katniss doesn't have to kill very many of the children she is of this impression that all the children are terrible murderers but she herself doesn't end up doing a lot of murdering right so like that's kind of similar where it's like all oh, those girls are horribly mean and every girl says that and i don't mean to be sexist about it because the guys go home too and are like man guys are so jerks to me today in the locker room they're so mean they're so nasty and like everybody thinks it's that way Right. Everybody thinks that they're the Katniss, right? And then well, sure. all the other people. Please. And it's not it's not gender segregated either, right? <laughs> like, no, 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 I not. certainly spent a fair amount of time in high school being sure that all the girls were so mean. Like uh, I got over it. Go on, finish your thing. Sorry. No, 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 that's it. I just that it's a, ne- a nexus between those two things yeah. is one of the levers, but the things John's talking about also makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I think what John was talking about is like, it makes a lot of sense and it's fascinating and I really enjoyed thinking about it, but if we, for our society right now, I think that's absolutely true, but if you like go back into the history of um, the most sort of cartoonishly totalitarian societies, you run into things that resemble uh, the Hunger Games in that particular aspect a lot more, where it'll like I mean you can look at the the rules that were issued to uh, to jazz bands under the Third Reich, telling them to play like no more than ten percent of their songs in the you know the uh, fiendish African foxtrot tempo because this is contrary <laughs> to to like the you know blood pressure of pure German uh, youth or something like that, which is a yep. exaggeration but a tiny exaggeration. Exaggeration and uh, yeah, things. Oh, go on. I'll, uh, sorry, if you, if you want to finish, I, I have a response. No, 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 I, but I'll, please. I'll, I'll I agree with you, but I'll add the the caveat that in in real life, or at least in you know examples in the 20th century, it rarely works. Like <laughs> the exa- the the example that comes to mind is because I was just reading about it a couple days ago. Uh, Nicolae Ceausescu, the uh, general secretary of the Romanian Communist Party and, you know, the the dictator of that country for about uh, 20 odd years or so, he outlawed contraception in 1967. And, you know, this was for various moralistic reasons having to do with, you know, building up the labor force. But it had the result, the unintended result of flooding the country's orphanages and producing, you know, a, a very tragic generation of kids who weren't properly raised and suffered from 
a wide variety of, you know, social disorders because they just didn't come from, you know, real families. So, and I'm thinking, I, I think similarly of, you know, the uh, the communists were also cracked down on on jazz and rockabilly and such. And there was a, but as a result, what rose up was a, a youth subculture of Stilyagi who, you know, started listening to jazz as very much a form of explicit political dissent who wore very, you know, throwback sort of greaser styles and did their hair up in pompadours as a form of, you know, political dissent against the against the ruling parties of the uh, the Soviet bloc and the Warsaw Pact. So I will say that, you know, in in reality, quote unquote reality, explicit explicit top down forms of social control very rarely work, whereas in fiction at least in sort of dystopian fiction, they seem to work quite a bit, uh, quite a good deal. Like yeah. 1984, for instance, or Atlas Shrugged, or The Hunger uh-huh. Games, or stuff like that. You know, there, there's a dictator who's like, we're going to keep people in line using this, and it works. Yeah, and like it, it typically it works right up to the start of the book, or then for like the more <laughs> depressing versions, like right up to the end of the book too. <laughs> but, you know, it's like that's that's often what the novel has to be about, right? But yeah, I think that would be if you were going to write Hunger Games fanfic, which I think like would be a great thing to do. After you finished doing your uh, docking J opus, talking about the sort of <laughs> weird, uh, you know, perverse youth culture that develops in reaction to the policies of the capital would be fascinating. You know, like does does uh, cooperation um, become kind of a fetishized marker of coolness because uh, the whole point of the Hunger Games is to deny collaboration. I just want to point out yeah. that on, on fanfiction.net, there are 12,348 <laughs> uh, Hunger Games stories available for you to, uh, to peruse. Um, so, um, uh, sorry, I'm going to dive into those right now. Uh, I, <laughs> you will be missed. <laughs> enjoy, does enjoy that the- count erotic ones or does it exclude erotic ones? Um, yes, uh, there's, I'm I'm oh, I'm a wow. uh, I'm an oh, FEV wow. I, like, I do what? <laughs> I want to read you some of these titles, but but some of them are not suitable for a family podcast. <laughs> yeah, keep, yeah, we've we've got to avoid those chili peppers on iTunes. So let's, <laughs> let's, <laughs> I will say this though: if you if you do a force Google search to include the terms Hunger Games, fan fiction, and logistics, you still get seventeen thousand results, which is pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice, nice. I like it. I like it. So speaking I, uh, of one thing, oh, go ahead, go for it. Uh, okay, I'll I'll throw this in real quick, but then Peter. Uh, speaking of family friendly. One of the, one of the, I guess this was this was probably deliberate on the part of the filmmakers. The 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 jogging cam, the the unsteadiness of the handheld cam, was probably deliberate so as to avoid some of the more brutal aspects of child on child violence. I particularly noted during the during the initial you know sixty second rush on the cornucopia after everyone comes up where there are several children who slaughter each other very quickly with bladed weapons or bare hands or whatnot, and we only get. We only get glimpses of it because we see, you know, we see the blade coming down, cut away to a shocked reaction, or the the camera just jogs out of frame right as the sword intersects with neck or vi- or something along those lines. So, I, ima- I imagine that was a deliberate stylistic conceit done for that. That was maybe preserved through later aspects just to just to keep it more unified. Or what are your guys' thoughts? 
I mean, it's sort of like when the military comes up with a technology for like a weapon, but then it ends up being used for like office or consumer technology. Like this was a technology that was developed to preserve like the film careers of people like Steven Seagal and Jet Li as they were getting older, right? Like for the most part, like the twitchy camera that cuts away as soon as the thing is about to happen. <laughs> that Steven Seagal could still like Aikido seven guys, even though he's like 65 years old. Um, at least that's what I associate this particular sort of style with is like later Steven Seagal movie. And it just so happens to also allow you to show children murdering each other. Um, I mean, it's funny because um, there were there were two kinds of, of pull-ups on the brutality. There's the kind you're talking about where, like, I'm thinking of especially the shot of the kid with the bloody brick. Like, they show you the kid, and this is in the commercial for the Hunger Games prior to the Hunger yes. Games starting, where they show that – this shot really got to me. They show a kid standing over another kid with a bloody brick. Now, they don't show the brick hitting the kid because that would be brutal. But they'll show you the bloody brick that's crunched in the kid's skull. And I think there might be some argument to be made that this – and we don't have to go into too much detail – that this shows kind of the foolishness of the rating system because if you know how sort of closure works in sequential art, right, and like the idea that like if you go from one panel where someone's about to hit someone with an axe to a panel of someone screaming from outside the window, that could – your mind could have created a much more graphic axe killing than like exists in the work. Right. I mean, I think that like the impact of the violence isn't necessarily reduced because you don't show the specific point of impact, though it is less gory, I guess. And, and so I, what is your goal in terms of protecting children from violence? That's, and, um, and that, but yeah. that particular moment was, was one of the, one of the moments where the kind of the psychological horror that, that pervades the books and doesn't quite, um, uh, doesn't quite make it into the movies for me in the same way it was clear because that that scene with the brick is accompanied by uh, is accompanied by this ironic talk about uh, Stanley Tucci's talking about ah I always remember the moment when a when a tribute becomes a victor you know what I mean and the idea yeah. that like something changes like there's a switch flipped when you become uh, a victor and like in the audience you're thinking oh there's a switch fl- flipped when you become a, a, a like cold blooded murderer you know what I mean or when you realize you know what I mean when you realize the extent of what you've done or something something like that so that stanley tucci thing is uh is ironic and sort of has that has that kind of alienating distance that a lot of the a lot of the rest of the movie lacks where where something uh where you know something from the book which is the the real kind of thinking through the implications uh implications of the violence anyway um if not the political implications or the you know supply chain implications of the world building Um, (laughs) if these these are rather rather imprecisely uh, filled in, the book kind of broods almost obsessively in the person of its uh, teenage narrator about sort of what am I becoming, you know, what have I done, um, that kind of thing. And and that moment, one of the reasons I think it was so horrifying is that it was one of the only moments when the the movie manages to gesture at that in a way that, that was sort of satisfying to me. I don't know, Mark, what do you think? Well, I want to take this in a little slightly different direction, actually. Because when we're talking about uh, the movie backpedaling a little bit from the violence and disturbing nature of its source material, the book, we absolutely have to talk about the major change in the end. You know, what we talked about previously were more stylistic things about, you know, cutting away from uh, the brick before it smashes down um, and, you know, the shaky camera stuff, you know, obscuring the slashing and brutal killing of the kids at, uh, at the beginning of The Hunger Games, right? I'm talking about the end. When uh, in the book, now this is a spoiler alert for the book if you've seen the movie but uh, haven't read the book, 
the capital takes the dead bodies of the kids and turns them into these horrible dogs that then uh, try to hunt down the last the three surviving uh, contestants to the games. Right. Right. Yeah. And in the movies, that's totally softened into a uh, cuddly CGI a dog beast thing which is, does not seem nearly as threatening as what i had imagined when i read those books yeah i just want to say really quickly the there were like like there were three or four things from the books that when i was reading it and knowing it was going to be a movie i was like this is going to be a real challenge for like the special effects department um or just sort of cinematic challenges in general and although i really liked the movie a lot i think that they failed like every one of these tests one was um the katniss's dress on fire didn't really work one was somehow conveying what president snow smells like which of course is (laughs) real hard right um another is capturing cat is sort of overanalyzing everything that she does as she does it, which would be almost impossible unless you do voiceover wall to wall. Then the fourth was the the mutations being the former tributes, which, like, I, I you know, I'm right with you. That was so horrifying in the book. Um, really kind of takes it out of uh, dystopian nightmare and into just like straight up nightmare nightmare. Um, and they they jumped away from it, and I don't really know why. I mean, it would have been pretty tough to explain, I, and I guess it because also is it ambiguous in the book whether they are actually the bodies or minds of the individuals that have been genetically engineered yeah, these animals, like the, or whether the like animals, the dogs, yeah, the dogs or the the like the evil dogs, the super dogs are ha, have just been given like the same color eyes and like characteristics, like blonde hair or something like that. Right, 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 right. right, right. I think that's that's supposed to be the horror, that ambiguity, that wait a second, did they reanimate the corpses and turn them into dogs or are they just making them look like dogs to mess with our heads? And of course, while you're paralyzed by that horror, it's on you and it eats you. Yeah, which is actually kind of metaphorical for what they do for the tributes in the first place. Do they turn them into monsters or do they merely portray the monsters, them as monsters? Right, like what is what what is the degree to which the people are debased by their participation in the events that take place? You know, how much do you actually stay yourself the way that Peter talks about wanting to stay himself? Well, the other thing that they pulled, the punch they pulled at the end is that Peter doesn't get his foot chopped off, right? like which is another thing. But that's not really all that important, and I guess it makes the future uh, movies a little bit simpler. He doesn't have to be walking yeah, around. There, with I a mean, cane like there were that. right exactly, and there, it's also like I, you know, Katniss doesn't get deafened by the explosion. You know what I mean? But she's yeah. cured at the end of the first book, so. Who cares? It doesn't have much of a, you know what I mean? And there were a few things like that where, where th- that I only noticed because I reread the books this very week in preparation for the movie and for this, this podcast and, and what I imagine will be a Hunger Games centric upcoming week on overthinking it. Um, and so they don't, I'll add, they don't matter, right? Yeah, I'll add one change between the book and the movie that I thought was pretty well done. I, I think if they'd shot, I think if they'd cut out about two seconds of dialogue that would have been perfectly done is they make Cato a little sympathetic, almost right at the end, like almost right before he's killed in the, in the book, he's this, in the book, he's this unstoppable killing machine who, you know, just needs to be, who just needs to be opposed at all costs in the movie. You know, he has Peter in that, in that chokehold, you know, uh, precipitous to a neck snap. And he's urging, He's urging Katniss to kill him, saying, you know, that's that's what they want anyway, isn't it? That's that's what was bound to happen. And he becomes Are very briefly you not entertained. <laughs> <laughs> he becomes very briefly in this this very quick face turn, uh, al- almost a little sympathetic or at least almost a little pathetic, really. Just, you know, he's he's been trained all his life to 
enter and and win the Hunger Games. And there's this girl from District 12, you know, the poorest and loneliest district who's been schooling everyone else so far. And it's just like, well, what was my life for? Like, why was I even born? Why did I even do anything? You're like, oh, and then, you know, he gets shot and then is eaten by wolves. (laughs) <laughs> by Hulk dogs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's exactly Jordan, what, are you, yeah. Jordan, are, are you going to share what you just found that you just talked to us about on the back channel? <laughs> I feel like you need to share it with that. Share it with the class. Don't be passing notes. <laughs> so I've been trying to narrow down like a story that would actually be Docking Jay. And I've been like, you know, Googling Hunger Games fan fiction supply chain, Hunger Games fan fiction quartermaster, Hunger Games fan fiction truck stop. All these things. And eventually, I ended up uh, coming across the category on fanfiction.net of Titanic and Hunger Games crossovers, which has one story in it (laughs) called The Ship of Dreams, which uh, has the description, this is a crossover with the movie Titanic and the Hunger Games, Katniss is Rose, and Peta is Jack. Please tell me if you like the idea. And let me tell you, um, novel Dreamer 25, I like the idea a lot. Um, so the other the other aspect in, in maybe that we can move on to is the the romance the idea that the love triangle is sort of played up uh in the movie more th- and it's more of a central um more of a central theme uh of the movie than than it is of the book the, the uh, whereas the book is more concerned with sort of not exactly coming of age, but more of a kind of internal internal struggle. I don't know, Pete. Do you think also that's... logistics? Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Also logistics. <laughs> also, how Can exactly I... how exactly those silver parachutes work? How they manage exactly to find the person that they uh, you know that they're supposed to find? I mean, they're just parachutes. You just drop them. You know what I mean? What? Yeah. Uh, right. Where's the and where is the parachute district? Honestly, right. you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually, before we talk about how it works in the movie, I have a question about the love triangle in general, which is basically the love triangle in the Hunger Games strikes me as a strong misreading of the love triangle from Twilight, where you've got this one girl who is torn between sort of a uh, one one boy who's kind of nice and safe and one boy who is dark and harsh. But it's it's a, it's not quite so easy to map onto that. So like people who have read both uh both Hunger Games and Twilight, rather, um, how would you map Edward and Jacob onto Peter and Gale, do well, you think? I'd I'd actually sort of I'd stop earlier in the analogy, right, and say that right uh, the triangle in Twilight is um you know, Bella has has two guys that she's really into and has to choose one. And the triangle in the Hunger Games is is that Katniss has two guys that she's not really that into, and she has to choose one. Right? Right. She has to choose one anyway, which is kind of hilarious. Yeah, and that, because <laughs> you know, and that I mean the the um yeah the so right so that um what so is the idea that that Peta is more the Edward and that. Uh, and that Gale is more the Jacob, or that that Gale is more the Edward, and Peta is is more the Jacob. I can't I can't see them mapping neatly onto that. I guess uh, I guess Gale I'm, is the. Yeah, I'm, I'm, less, I'm less familiar with Twilight, except insofar as I've seen the movie, and of course have overviewed it with you guys for the Twilight overview available on OverthinkingIt.com. For free, but uh, for free. But the the one thing I will note, and I, I talked about this a little in the the article I wrote on the site for the Hunger Games novel, 
is that PETA is, or sorry, in a typical love triangle, there's the there's the guy who the woman is supposed to fall in love with and the guy who the woman is not supposed to fall in love with. And typically the one she's not supposed to fall in love with is the bad boy or the rebel or the guy from the wrong side of town who's poor but has a good heart, etc. And the guy she's supposed to fall in love with is the more traditional match, the one that the one that society, if we can if we can ascribe action or agency to society, would encourage her to go to. And in the case of the Hunger Games, you know, she's being encouraged to go to PETA, except in the Hunger Games, she is literally being encouraged by the social order. Like, it's not a sort of nebulous arrangement of forces and social pressures. Like, the more she kisses him, the more silver parachutes with presents drop out of the sky, the better the chance she has, the better the chance she has to live. Like, the rewards for choosing the right, the quote-unquote right guy in the Hunger Games are literal and immediate and tangible. But that's so not that's, even – sure, but that's not even, like, choosing – I, I think that that I think you're you're right, but what she's doing there isn't isn't choosing between them. You know what I mean? Because it's not like the other one is there. You know the choice the choice is between food and no food. It's not between Peta and Gale at that well, point. I mean, she could she could also theoretically choose to forego the hey let's let two of us win from District Twelve route and just try and win the game on her own in order to stay quote unquote faithful. To Gale now, obviously, she's not really considering Gale as a as a romantic prospect at this point, but you know she has some some feelings for him. Completely now, I'm just saying that the story could have gone in that direction. So I think this still represents a choice on her part. And you know, even if she is pretending just for the sake of tactical benefit, I don't know if if you pretend something for long enough, isn't it essentially the same as doing it for real? Yeah, especially when you have have presents dropping out of the sky. I mean, like, makeouts already act as operant conditioning, you know, to sort of put you into a relationship (laughs) with that person. So having, (laughs) having, like, stuff dropping out of the sky, um, I mean, it would have made high school a lot, I don't know about more interesting, but different, if that's how it really worked, I guess. (laughs) I mean, I'll I'll say... (laughs) The the, the fact that Uh, Gail isn't right there doesn't doesn't mean that... uh, Sorry, go on. (laughs) Yeah, your your health or your sex ed teacher watching you on a camera and then pushing a button to dispatch silver parachutes when you, you know, make out with... uh, This is getting weird. It's getting weird. Sorry, Fenzel, you go. So Gail maps onto Jacob, right? Much more clearly in the movie, I think because of his, it, yeah, because of his like connection with the land and and kind of yeah. ideas about and nat- how, native how people. He, looks. And things he like has this. the same haircut. He has the same haircut. He has the same like facial expressions. Like he's met that guy is supposed to look like Jacob. Yeah, he goes he goes um, from from medium brood to like deep brood. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and like Jacob, he's like sincerely interested in the welfare of Bella. Right or of of Katniss. Yeah. The difference is that like the Hunger Games, while it is to a degree a fantasy, is not willing to indulge in fantasy to the extent of the existence of an Edward. Right, like the idea is like the world is not so nice that you get to have an Edward. You can have a Jacob, like you can have a guy that you can't be with who's really attractive who likes you, but you're not allowed to have like a, 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 a an actual lover. That's the point, right? Is that like the the government creates Edward. The government turns Peta into this love, uh, this love thing, this like, this like forbidden lover, you know, this like, and, and it, it, even though it's not real, right? Because because that's not what Katniss's experience is like being a teenager, and I think that's probably a pretty authentic to the way that a lot of women feel and and boys too, and like a lot of their early sexual experimentation, right? It's like this person isn't the be all end all. 
right? Like it would be nice if they were, like you know, but they're not because that's not how it works. And you're scared of what they make you feel, or or maybe they don't make you feel anything. You do it anyway because you feel like you have to, right? Yeah, like, there's um, a sense that you, there's a sense that you have to be with someone. Like, oh, everyone else is everyone else is doing it. I should be I should be doing it as well. I'm weird if I'm not, which is which is a, a poisonous notion to an extent. And it's it's interesting to see it portrayed in The Hunger Games as a tool of dystopian control. Well, and it's, yeah. it's I sort mean, of Katniss was ne- it was never an issue, right, until the games, until this, uh, uh, you know, this kind of media-constructed idea of romance gets, uh, you know, imposed on her. Like, she was she was perfectly happy going, going hunting, you know, in her kind of tomboyish sort of uh, super responsible taking care of her, her family and her kind of slightly absent mother um, uh, going hunting with Gale in the woods uh, all the time. Uh, it's not until, right, I, this, I guess, is just, is I'm trying to buttress what you're saying, Pete. Like, the idea of romance doesn't enter it until uh, until that's how she's sold. Right. I mean, there's a much, much deeper um, critique of the Edward myth, right, like that happens in the later books that I won't get into with a character named Finnick, uh, who, who like is much more of an Edward than Peta is. But I won't talk about what happens to him and what the horrible revelations are about his life, because that's something that we'll wait a couple years for to figure out. And actually, but, uh, in, in, yeah. in the very like even in the very last um, it's. I don't know. I my the very last paragraph of the very last book of the of the trilogy deals with the the Gale Peta the loading the lo- oh, yeah. deals with the, the loading <laughs> deals with the width of an, deals with the width of an axle and standardizing uh, truck sizes based on two horses ass. No, um, the deals with the Gata, Gale versus Peta thing I, and without without saying exactly how it. It comes out. I'll say that Pete, that what you're, um, what you're saying is the is the explicit concern. The idea that like uh, that there is no, you know, that there is no perfect life, and the only thing you can do is kind of go on. You know, is is an explicit concern uh, of of the of the end of the book. But here's the thing: it's dispensed with in a paragraph rather than being this thing that you know what I mean. And and it struck me even the first time I read it, it struck me like, wow, that was abrupt. And I think that I think that it's because the the love triangle is actually the quote unquote love triangle is actually not really a concern. Is not really a concern of of the the books because the books are kind of more about. Um, the the more material aspects of life, like bodies and bodies being blown to bits, and uh, you know, like descriptions, uh, descriptions of food, descriptions of mm-hmm. outfits, uh, almost like almost kind of for uh, kind of uncomfortably fetishistic descriptions of like beauty and grooming and things like this. The material things, rather than uh, rather than the ideological things, and this is something I get get into a little bit in the article that's going to go on overthinking it on Monday, but like. Uh, the idea that that there's there's a um, there's a bigger shift right in the movie in focusing on the love triangle because it's it's focusing on it's focusing on something that the book is not about which is kind of dreams and aspirations and fantasies and yeah you know things like that. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean- Oh. Do you want to go or <laughs> Jordan? Yeah. Go. Go, go for it. <laughs> the the, the idea. 
<laughs> the idea that uh, the Hunger Games is fetishistic is uh, is interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, but there's a lot of weight is put onto objects, right? And you can yeah. even think of the Hunger Games itself as like the kids become sort of fetish objects for the district right. that the capital gets to uh, to you know expunge and uh, and deny over and over again every year. But just think of, I mean, think of the out, think of the outfits. Think of the. There's a great, there's a great moment in in the movie where where what's her name, um, uh, Effie shrinks. That's mahogany. You know what I mean? Like the, <laughs> you know, objects and the the and the the uh, the kind of status of objects and the kind of the displacement of 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 things onto objects. Um, one of the most important being like a bow and arrows. You know yes, what I yes, mean? Yes. Which is a you know not coincidentally involves kind of a long sticky a pointy thing right (laughs) making out with the freaking bow which was ridiculous oh my goodness that was ridiculous (laughs) but we should call it right now right that this summer the most popular activity at every summer camp across america is going to be bow and arrow right archery lessons bows and arrow lessons archery lessons going to shoot through the roof like the, the sale of bows and arrows archery equipment is going to it's going to be a banner year for them though yeah that and decorating cakes. <laughs> it's funny. There's a, there's another good little moment, a little offhand moment in in the book when um, Woody Harrelson is sitting in the Capitol and he's watching uh, a Capitol family give their children toys, and the toy is a sword to commemorate the start of the Hunger Games, and they start chasing each other around with this play plastic sword, and there's this you know implied contrast between the the, the brutality of the the real swords and the uh, the play plastic swords. I mean, I think if we all get into archery, you know. Um, um, the capital wins. Sure. <laughs> wait, 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 just to be clarified, you said I think you said books, but you meant you meant the movie, right? I don't know oh, if that's mo- sorry in the movie. In the movie, that scene is not in the is not in the book. Sorry, it's in the movie. Yeah. Oh, here's another thought I had as well. Speaking of the fetishization of objects, and also sort of that you know play violence aspect. Uh, are they going to make uh, action figures for the Hunger Games? Would that be kind of uh, defeating the purpose or missing the point? Rather, I'm googling it uh, right now. Googling, I, I would, Googling. I would almost certainly say yes. So, guys, confirm or deny on Google in a few seconds. But, uh, but yeah, I mean the 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 metafictional aspects of the movie aside, I don't think that will prevent the producers of the movie from capitalizing on the movie in such a way that's in line with the metafictional metafictional aspects. In other words, I, I think people will people will still will still take it as you know, an anthem to heroism, even though the movie is really about how heroism can be suborned by the ruling culture and the social order to serve the values that best institutionalize the existing rules of power. And we will include in the show notes a link to uh, Hunger Games action figures on Amazon. <laughs> Interestingly, they, they appear to only <laughs> have Katniss, Peta, and Gale. So they don't appear to have like like it looks like you're only supposed to play out like the romantic plot unless it's like then it's what's like, the bow and arrow for? <laughs> That's a good question. There's no one for her to. She's got to, someone's got to shoot Megatron and stop him from blowing up the moon. Yeah. So they, right. you know, <laughs> uh, definitely. Wow. Yeah. That's absolutely. actually. 
bow and arrow. It's kind of funny because what you do when you're a kid, when you have action figures, is mashups, right? Like you, you never have enough of any one kind of action figure to sort of populate your dreams. So yeah, Katniss is going to be shooting Megatron. But that's going to be something really weird and something I never had to deal with growing up when kids have toys that like some of them are from worlds where people die and some of them are from worlds where that never happens, you know? Yeah, well, yeah, people, yeah, that's true. People died, people died in everything from the 80s. Like, people died in Transformers the movie. People, well, almost died in G.I. Joe the movie. There was, there, was <laughs> death all over, there was death all over the place. I suppose. But in G.I. Joe the TV show, they jumped out in parachutes at the last minute. You know, yeah. and that was, that was just how it went. <laughs> does that mean that they're immortal? Like, does the, does the power, do you have the powers? Is, is the immortality of G.I. Joe television characters a characteristic of them or of the world they're in? Like, if you pick them up and move them into, like, No Country for Old Men, would, like, Anton Chigger be tremendously frustrated? Because, I think because if you like, look at guys. <laughs> if you look at Anton Chigger's haircut closely, he actually is Cobra Commander. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. <laughs> See, flip that coin. Flip that coin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fem, fem, I, I didn't think that was where you're going with this. I thought you were going to characterize immortality as the constant capability to avoid death. Like, oh, because these guys can always parachute out of exploding planes or mountain fortresses or whatnot, they therefore can never die. Because this, this is actually evocative of an argument I had with my little brother back when we were, you know, 10 and 5, respectively. Because we'd be playing with action figures, and he would make the assertion that Nightcrawler, for instance, couldn't be killed. Because as soon as something got close to him, he would teleport away. And I would say, well, yes, but it's, that doesn't mean it's impossible that Nightcrawler can be killed. There could be something that could theoretically kill Nightcrawler. But he would say, no, like as soon as he saw it coming, he would just teleport away. I'm like, no, 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 you're not getting it. And this argument would go on for hours. So... <laughs> I mean, it's a really important argument for things like industry self-regulation, right? Where you're like, well, Nightcrawler would always choose to teleport away. He wouldn't voluntarily get hit with a bullet. And it's like, yeah, like, you should just let Nightcrawler regulate himself. Like, he can handle it. <laughs> and it turns out in practice that Nightcrawler is sometimes just going to not look before it crosses the street for some reason. <laughs> Because yeah. he gets arrogant about being Nightcrawler. Yeah, he also can te- but he can teleport out and, like, leave the viral load in the air so that it, like, falls to the ground. That, I don't know <laughs> if he's ever done that. But, uh, I was actually going to ask that. I was like, can he teleport away from Hantavirus, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, like, Cobra Commander has, like, prostate cancer, can he, like, jump out the window and there the parachute and be okay? <laughs> like, out of the hospital. <laughs> too soon. Too soon. Well, I think we, we've, we've proved that this podcast podcast can't regulate itself so it, might, <laughs> it might be time too to mad, this podcast is too big to fail <laughs> <laughs> too big to fail right so uh yeah so uh so like president snow i'll uh, i'll get you next time katniss uh if you want to uh <laughs> join the conversation about the hunger games you can um uh, you can call us at 203-285-6401 call or text we can uh, get sms messages uh and we don't get a lot of those from the overthinking it podcast the tft podcast maybe because of the target demo we get more uh we get more text messages but i'd love some text messages to 203-285-6401 we'll read them out on 
on the show. Uh, or you can email podcastoverthinking.com or leave a comment on the show notes of this episode. Uh, join us next week uh, for the April Fools episode. And uh, Randall Schwartz Merlin has said that he will be a, uh, a guest on that one. Um, we have uh, the return of uh, the return of Randall to the podcast and the return of April Fool's Day uh, to overthinking it. And uh, in the meantime, uh, you can find all kinds of Hunger Games stuff and uh, all of us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't You know what? Uh, are, are you guys? No, go ahead. go ahead, John. No, go ahead, John. Go ahead. Okay, so you're not going to interrupt me with. All right. No, no. So you know go what? Ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> uh, go ahead. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Never. Mind. You know what I worry about for Jennifer Lawrence? What's that? I I worry that she's going to be typecast as an Appalachian girl who has to hunt to feed her family when her mother goes catatonic. No, she's already she was already uh, Mystique in uh, in X Men, so that's a uh, okay. Know, so there you go. That 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 broke up the chain. Okay, a so, so she's a, she's actual right. girl with blue scaly skin. So it's, so it's only two of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just only but, twice. <laughs> but in, in defense of your argument, it is also both of them. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. My actual favorite district is uh, where the capital. <laughs> Where the Capitol Court see what was on the Capitol decided that they couldn't handle the rebellious influence of, of, of Pan Am's most extreme, which is why they put built the giant half pipe around District X. <laughs> but the thing is it's not re- it's not really a half pipe, it's a full pipe all the way around, so they can't escape it, so they just keep escaping. <laughs> exactly.